is in, actually my whole family, is away in um, upstate in Quebec preaching a missions conference where my father is preaching and my siblings are singing and they're all are doing various things to be a blessing to the church up there. Most of you know Brother Monette. And so I am the assistant here for those that are visiting with us today. And so my father asked me to preach. This is actually my first time preaching on a Sunday morning at our church. So it's quite a blessing, but it's also quite nerve-wracking. So I pray that you all be patient with me. And um, it's good to see everyone here, despite all the wind and the threat of torrential downpour. Well, that's probably not till tomorrow, but anyways, it's good to see everyone here. Father, Lord, I come before you this morning, and I want to thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. I know there's no higher privilege nor a, no, and no greater opportunity. I pray, Father, Lord, that those that are here would have ears that are open to receive the word of God, that you would open my mouth and my heart to speak the word of God. Give me the ability to speak it clearly, Father. Speak it to the hearts of all that are here, both myself and those that hear me. May you be glorified in all that is said and done. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. We should notice the force, effect, and consequences of inventions, which are nowhere more conspicuous than in those three which were unknown to the ancients, namely printing, gunpowder, and the compass. For these three have changed the appearance and state of the whole world, first in literature, then in warfare, and lastly in navigation. And innumerable changes have been thence derived, so that no empire, sect, or star appears to have exercised a greater power and influence on human affairs than these mechanical discoveries. Most of you probably won't know the name that I'm about to say who uttered those words. It was Francis Bacon. Some of you may know who that was. In 1620, when King James I was still on the throne of England. Obviously, from the list of inventions that he gave, you probably will gather it was uttered some time ago. Most of us are not in the habit of thinking that the compass ushered in a new era of world history, though in actuality it was one of the most significant inventions ever. Well, we've had some other things that people have thought have really ushered in a new day in world history. When the railroads in the early 1800s began to span continents, people began to think that the golden age must have dawned. The end of time must be here because, you know, we could get across the country in just a few days. Well, you know, then in, there were many other inventions throughout the course of the 1800s, and we could be here all day if we mentioned everything that someone thought was about to change the world. Well, then in 1948, regular broadcast television began, and the age of television was upon us. The golden age was here, in which everyone would be so much more deeply informed about world events. And in 1969, there was a group called the Fifth Dimension that sang a song called The Age of Aquarius, and the day of peace and love was going to come, and a day of new world wonder was here. Well, that didn't last very long. The first iPhone came out in 2007. We know that that has ushered in the end of time, now that the iPhone is here. And the end of time begins again every time they release a new iPhone. So it seems if you listen to their advertising. Well, we know that really what was going to change and bring in the end of history was the election of our current president in 2008. Whatever you think about him or whatever you hope for the, the uh, election that is coming upon us, I think that we can all agree that the day of hope and peace and joy and the end of history that some really did think was about to come did not come in 2008. But I want to talk to you today about the true beginning of the end of history. 
the beginning of the last days, a truly significant change in world history that puts all of those things, whether it be the printing press or the compass or the iPhone or the election of a particular political candidate, it puts those things in the shade. It makes them appear as if they were utterly insignificant. I want to tell you God's perspective on what has brought about the end of time, what has brought us to the last days, what God considers to be the harbinger, the, the, um, the sign of the end of times. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter 2, the book of Acts in chapter 2, and I'm going to read the, from the beginning of the chapter, but the message is going to focus on starting in verse 14, but for sake of context, I'll start in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And if you hear a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind tomorrow, it's the hurricane, it's not the Holy Spirit. Don't go outside and see what's going on. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. This would have been one of the pilgrim feasts in which people, Jews, would come, and proselytes from other nations, converts to Judaism, from all over the world, would be there at this time. And they were dwelling at Jerusalem out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? If we were to say in our day, we would say, Aren't these people hicks from the sticks? How in the world do they know all these different languages, and just in case we got the idea they were making up languages on their own and speaking gibberish, it lists the languages that they were speaking. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. They were not just speaking, they, you know, most of these people would have been able to understand um, Aramaic, which was the language, a type of Hebrew that they spoke in the day of the apostles, or if they had spoken Greek, most of them would have understood it as well. But here were all of these different people from all over the world, and they were hearing it, not just in their language, but when it says... Um, in our tongues, it's talking about in their dialect. You know, if you go down south and you, you go down to Mississippi or Alabama, then people are not going to speak the dialect that they speak in New York City. You will know if someone is from your home state if they speak like the people in that state because they're going to talk a little different. Well, here were these people and they were hearing the word of God in the language in which they had been brought up. They were hearing it in their mother tongue, even their mother dialect. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine, with the implication that they were just a little tipsy 
or a lot of tipsy and they were speaking gibberish and it was all a bunch of nonsense. Well, you might think from my introduction and, and from reading this passage that this is what I'm talking about, that this is what is brought in the end of time, but it be, will become clear as we go through Peter's sermon that this is, not the, this is not the significant thing about the end of time, though it is important. This is the sign that the last days are upon us and it's a sign that's pointing towards an event that is even more significant. The coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church of Jesus Christ was truly a very important event. It was an event that had world, hist world consequences for world history, but that event was merely a sign that pointed to a far greater event, a far greater event that is the focus of Peter's sermon. Verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Peter stands up and hear all these people, and one person is saying, I don't know what's going on. Another person is saying, I know what's going on. These people are drunk, and then these people that think they're hearing and their language are drunk, and everybody's drunk, and it's just a bunch of craziness, and they all should go back to bed. Well, Peter said, that's not a very likely explanation. Guys, it's nine o'clock in the morning. This, they would not have, at this time in that culture, they would not have even had breakfast yet. The third hour, they started their hours at sunrise at six o'clock. So this would have been about nine o'clock in the morning. They weren't even done with breakfast yet. People don't get drunk at that hour unless they started the night before. So, you know, they say this is, this is not a very likely explanation. But, Peter said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He tells them what's really taking place. You don't, some of you don't know what's taking place. Some of you have a wrong idea of what's taking place. But what's really taking place here is this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And he quotes at length a prophecy from Joel. In verse 17 he begins, And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. prophesy. Peter tells them, the la you want to know what is taking place here. You want to know what is causing all of this commotion and this hubbub. It means that the last days are here. This is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy about the last days. This was the sign of the last days that all of God's people, not just a select few, would be filled with the Holy Ghost. This is the sign that the last days are here. And then Paul, and then, pardon me, Peter goes on to continue to quote from from um, Joel's prophecy in verse 19. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now this does not mean that on this day that Peter was preaching that all of a sudden the moon began to be like blood and the sun began to be darkened. No, these are the events that take place at the end of the last days 
These are, the, these are the signs of the final judgment. So because the last days are here, that's the sign that the, 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 they're prophesying. It's the sign the last days are here. That means that the judgment is coming. Peter's going to refer back to this at the end of the sermon. The reason why his sermon, the reason why his message is so urgent is because the last days are here. And that means the end of the last days, the judgment is going to come. And it's going to come swiftly. And it's going to come unexpectedly because we're in the time in which the judgment will show up. But in the meantime, he finishes quoting from Joel's prophecy, verse 21, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the last days are, we, we have the sign of that, is these prophecies that are coming fulfilled, that people are filled with the Holy Ghost. That means the judgment, are, that means the judgment is coming that will end history. But in the meantime, while we're living in the last days, waiting for the end of history, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Peter is going to go on. He said, this is what's taking place. The end of time is here. The last days have begun. And now Peter's going to explain to them, the last days have begun. What has brought this about? I mean, if somebody said the last days are here, you'd want to know, well, why are you saying that? Is that because they came out with a new iPhone? Well, then if that's what their explanation is, probably you shouldn't take them very seriously. Why should these Jews that Peter was preaching to take him seriously? Well, he's going to explain to them why he should take this, why they should take this seriously. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Peter says to them, here is why this is taking place, because Jesus, whom you are responsible for putting on the cross, you delivered him to the hands of the Romans, and the Romans crucified him, and Jesus has been crucified, but we are the witnesses that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So here are the last days. What's brought this about, why I'm saying this is taking place, is because Jesus, he was crucified, but he didn't stay dead, he was raised again. Well, what does it mean that, you know, Jesus was crucified, Jesus was raised again, we're the witnesses that Jesus has truly come out of the tomb. Peter stood up, and next to him were the 11 other apostles, the 11 original apostles Jesus had appointed, plus Matthias, that they had just recently established to be the 12th witness of the resurrection, and they were there, 12 Jewish men, who said to the community, we have seen the resurrected Christ, he is alive. Well, why, because Jesus is alive, does that mean that the last days are here? Just because Jesus was raised from the dead, what does that mean? Well, Peter's going to explain to them what that means. He says, for David, verse 25, speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. 
Now, one thing to understand about this passage here is when it says, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, the word hell in the Bible it is used both of the place in which those that are punished for sin eternally separated from God, what we usually think of when we say hell, the realm of the departed ungodly that are suffering the judgment of God, but it can also be more generic as it is here, in which it refers to those that are dead. The realm of the dead, the grave, would be another way we could think about it. And this is not a bad translation because if you look it up in a, the Oxford English Dictionary, you'll find the first definition of the word hell in English is the realm of the departed spirits. The second definition is the realm of the departed spirits that are suffering the damnation of God. This is the way that the word is used in this context is that the realm of the dead, not specifying whether they were righteous or wicked dead. And so here is this prophecy that David had made. David said that because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, that is the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Peter says, what does this mean? Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. And in the time of Peter, just a few years before, they had erected a huge marble monument over the tomb of David that everyone could see and everyone could know about. This was something they, they were all aware with. Everyone had seen the tomb of David. It was obvious to all that David was dead and David had stayed in the grave. David had seen corruption. So Peter says, you know, what, what does this mean then? If David himself is still in the grave and we know where his tomb is, what does it mean? Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. And Peter is reasoning here from the scriptures with these Jewish men who knew the scriptures. And he is saying, when, when David made this prophecy, David wasn't talking about himself. David was talking about his descendant that would be the Messiah. The word Christ is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. And Peter is saying that the one that is the Messiah is the one that will not see corruption. Now, they knew their history of Israel very well. David died and David's body saw corruption. That means that David's body rotted and faded away to become dust again. Not trying to be grotesque, but that's exactly what it means that David stayed in the tomb and the natural process of decay and deterioration took place. Well, Solomon, the same thing happened. And Rehoboam, the same thing happened. All of the descendants of David up to that point had died and they had seen corruption. The one that would not see corruption was the Messiah. So what Peter said is, going back to his first point, his first point was that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We're witnesses of the fact that the resurrection has taken place and the significance of the resurrection is that he who has been resurrected must be the Messiah because no one else fits that qualification. And David said that the one who would sit on his throne would be a resurrected man who had died and had come back, who had died and had not seen corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof, verse 32, we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, 
And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. Peter is saying the exaltation of Jesus is what has brought about the beginning of the last days. Because Jesus has been proved to be the Messiah, proved to be the Son of God and God the Son. Therefore, it is Jesus that has sent forth these signs that the last days are upon us. And he quotes something else from the Psalms in verse 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Since Jesus has been exalted, the last days are here, and he has sent forth the Spirit. This is what is going on. And, up, and then the people begin to say, well, they begin, and, and, and verse 37 begins their reaction to Peter's sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were startled. They were amazed. They were shocked. Just a few weeks before, they had been calling for the crucifixion of Christ. Crucify him. Crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. They thought that he was an outcast, despised of God. They thought that he had suffered the curse of being hanged on a tree. He was judged of God. He was despised of men. And now Peter is saying to them, that man who you thought was the judged of God, that man who you put to death, now he's been proved to be the exalted Messiah, sitting at the right hand of God, participating in the glory of God, proving that he is indeed very God of God. He's brought in the last days. He sent forth the Spirit. This is the event. This is the significance. This is the turning point in world history. And if we study the Bible as a whole, we see that everything up to this point is leading up to and pointing forward to the coming and the exaltation and the, the victory that Christ would, wrought, would, that Christ would bring at the cross and at the resurrection. And then as we go forward through the rest of world history, we see that everything is pointing back to that point and leading on to the final end of history, the judgment that Peter mentioned just a little bit before. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, there was a promise that the Messiah was going to come. And all the way back to the time of Abraham, it was the seed of Abraham that the promise was going to come. Through the son of David, the promise was going to come. Through the prophets, my servant, in the book of Isaiah, the prophecies were going to be fulfilled. The end of time was going to come. The last days were going to be brought in. And now they were here. So what? What did that mean? What were they supposed to do? What, were the, what was the significance? What was the proper response to the pivotal event in all of world history? The event that brought about the beginning of the last days. What were they supposed to do? Peter told them what they were supposed to do. In fact, he'd given them a hint of it at the beginning when he quoted from Joel. For Joel, it also pointed towards this. Verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the Holy Ghost. 
For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Peter told them that the proper response to the beginning of the last days was to repent and take advantage of the fact that the door of salvation had been opened. And some people get hung up where Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Well, if we look at the context and we look at, and we look at the other passages in the book of Acts, it becomes very clear that when it says, for the remission of sins, it's not saying you need to be baptized so that your sins will be remitted unto you, but because your sins have been remitted, therefore you need to be baptized. For in the sense of on account of your remission of sins, because you repented, therefore you begin to obey Christ by being baptized and publicly identifying yourself with the resurrected Christ in baptism. The man... um, One of the commentators that I read said, Repentance is the key response. It leads to public participation in the representative rite of baptism as well as to the forgiveness that the rite that is of baptism signifies. Repentance also leads to the receiving of the Spirit. Peter promised them participation in the work of the Spirit if they would repent, if they would turn from their sins and turn to Christ. And he said, verse 39, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as as many as the Lord our God shall call. We do live in the last days, not because of the invention of the printing press, not because of television, not because of the iPhone, and certainly not because of the election of any political candidate. We live in the last days because the Messiah has come. We live in the last days because the Messiah has conquered death. We live in the last days because the Messiah has been exalted to his proper place. And being exalted, he has opened a door so that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. There was a man that I I met. I I work at the polling booths during the elections. And the last election that I worked, I met a man and I very unwisely gave him my email. And ever since... He sent me two, three emails a day about how this world event and that world event are pointing forward to the end of time. And and, and all of them are the political events with the Eurozone and this and that and all kinds of remarkable, amazing things that I never read. I just, you know, delete them. But he's very concerned that he's living in the last days. But in all of his concern, he's missing the point. He's missing the point because he is more focused on the insignificant after effects of living in the last days than on the truly important event that has brought about the last days. What is truly important about the last days is the proclamation of the gospel. It is this that characterizes the last days. Not any invention, not any cultural or political change. The gospel is still being proclaimed, but as Peter warned almost 2,000 years ago, the coming of the last days means that judgment is right around the corner and can come at any time. No one here has any idea how much longer salvation will still be available. The wrath of God is still stored up, but it will not be stored up for much longer. It too is coming, and when it comes, it will be too late to repent. Because salvation is still available for all, repentance is still demanded of all, and that means that repentance is still demanded of you. 
It does not matter if you are a great sinner and you have sinned and you may be someone here today or even more likely there's someone here today that knows someone who thinks I am such a terrible sinner that I cannot repent of my sins. God will not accept me. Well, no, Peter said the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are afar off. So you can go because the last days are here. You can go to someone or if you are someone that thinks I'm so far away from God. I will never be able to approach God. Well, no, because the Messiah has come, now you can approach God and you can repent and He will forgive you for your sins. That's what it means that the last days are here. That there is repentance that is available to those that will come and will accept Christ and you can be part of the truly significant event that is brought in the last days. And there are some people that their idea is not I'm such a bad sinner that I can't come to Christ. So their idea is I'm such a good person that I don't need to come to Christ. Well, the Bible is very clear. There is none good, no, not one. All have sinned to come short of the glory of God. There is none that is righteous. All are righteous are as filthy rags in God's sight. No, everyone, because salvation is available to all, repentance is still demanded of all. That means that everyone must repent. That means that even if you are a member of this church, if you made a profession of faith and you did not repent of your sins and turn to Christ, then it's not going to get you into heaven. Being baptized doesn't get you into heaven. No, being baptized pictures the fact that you've been baptized in the blood of Christ and you are on your way to heaven. Therefore, you identify yourself with the community that together is on its way to heaven. That's what baptism is about. No, you must repent. You must be, as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. If you've not been born again, then it doesn't matter how good a person you think you are. And it doesn't matter how long you've attended this church. If you've never been born again, you're all that awaits you is the judgment that's coming at the end. That's not a pretty picture. Peter talks about, And I will show wonders in heavens above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And the book of Revelation and the other things that the Bible talks about, the day of the Lord coming in judgment that comes at the very end of the last days, that is not a nice picture. It's the wrath of God that's been stored up against a world that collectively has rejected His Son. And it's coming. And if you have not repented of your sins, then no religion, no goodness, no niceness, no sweetness, no nothing will cut it. You must repent. You must be born again because salvation is still available to all. Repentance is still demanded of all. This this, this alone is what has brought in the last days. This is what we must be concerned about. If you have repented, if you have been saved, then the concern of your life must be to bring the glad tidings to others. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is pouring out His Spirit on all who believe. Salvation is still available to all. Everywhere you go, you must take this message with you. The last days are here and the time is running out. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and obey the gospel. Repent and proclaim the gospel. And yet so often we're more excited to proclaim the latest gadget that we have got for ourselves, even to our lost friends. We're, we're more concerned to show off what we have than, than, to, than, to, than to point to who has saved us. 
this is what's going on that's truly significant. It's not the gadgets that we have. I mean, I'm not against gadgets. I like gadgets. But if we tell our friends more about gadgets than about Jesus, than about the Messiah, we have a very twisted perspective on world history. We have a very twisted perspective on spiritual reality. If we're more concerned with the election of a political candidate than with the exaltation of the Messiah, I'm not sure where our heart is. It's terrifying to think that so many Christians have never told anyone about the most important thing, not just in their lives. Yes, salvation is to be the most important thing in your life, but sometimes we miss sight of the fact salvation is the most important event. Pardon me, that the coming of Christ and the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ is the most important event, period. Jesus Christ will not just be Lord in the future. No, Jesus Christ is Lord now. And Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is Lord, He has poured out His Spirit that is a sign of the last days. And the door of salvation has been opened. And we are to be a picture to others of what the reign of Christ on earth is going to look like one day. Here, in the church, we are to live by the laws of the kingdom of God. We are to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to love one another. We are to act as though we truly are the servants of Christ. Because we have received the power of the Holy Ghost and if you go on, you're going to see the effect that this doctrine had, that this belief had, that the church began to love each other. The church began to witness, and they saw more people come in. But even more significant than that, the church began to be a testimony to the power of the gospel. That whereas before, if you had a group of thousands of people in one place, they would be fighting one with another. There would be animosity one with another. There would be greed and there would be pride and there would be all of those things. But the power of the gospel and the sense that the last days were upon them was so overwhelming that it overpowered all of that nonsense. And as they focused on the gospel, they were drawn towards each other. They were drawn to be a better picture of the love that Christ had given them. And as they did that, then more and more people were added to the church. So my question to you today, salvation is still available to all. Repentance is still demanded of all. What have you done with this demand? Have you repented? Have you been born again? Have you been saved has the Spirit of God changed your life? If that has happened, then what effect is it having in your life? Are you truly aware of the significance of that? Are you living like that is really the most important thing in your life? Not just the most important thing in your life, but the most important thing in world history. If you're living like that is the most important thing, then you're going to be in harmony with the others that are living like that is the most important thing. And if you're not in harmony, it's because one or both of you that are not living in harmony is not living like the exaltation of Christ is the most important event in world history. That's the simplest and only 
explanation for why there is dissension and conflict is because only by pride cometh contention. That's what the Spirit of God says in the book, in the book of Proverbs. So if there's pride, it's because you think what's going on in your life and in your activities is more important than what the Spirit of God has done than what has happened when Jesus Christ has been exalted and when you place your own petty activities above the work of the Spirit of God, that's when the church begins to fight and that's when we begin to be a poor testimony of the grace of God. But if this is truly the most significant event, then not only will we live like it is and therefore we will be in harmony with other believers, but then we will go out into all the world and we'll preach the gospel and we'll preach the gospel not just by preaching sermons, but by giving out gospel tracts, not just by giving out gospel tracts, but by being a witness to all with whom you come in contact by your life and by your words because this really is the most important event in all of world history, not just in your life, but in all of world history. We must take that message to the world, but we can't take that message to the world unless we're living it out in our lives, unless we're really living like the exaltation of Christ, like the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. The gospel is it. The gospel is everything. The gospel is what is brought in the last days. The gospel is a sign that repentance is still available. There's coming a day when judgment will come and repentance will not be available. But for right now, we have the gospel. The door is open. We don't know how long it's going to be open. We must live for that in our own lives. And we must go to people. And we must try as hard as we can by the grace of God, to wake them up and let them see that this is what is important. How important is it to you? Father, I come before you, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would change the hearts of everyone that is here, Father. Not just other people's hearts, Father, Lord, but I'm convicted even by preaching this message, Father, Lord, how many times I've lived like something else was more important. How many times I've lived like the last thing I got in the mail was the, the greatest event in world history as far as I was concerned. Father, Lord, I don't want to live that way anymore. And Lord, I don't want anyone else here to live that way anymore. Father, Lord, if there's someone that has not been born again, I pray you'd apply the gospel to their hearts. They'd come, they would repent, they'd turn to you. And they participate in the greatest thing that ever has been. I pray for us who are saved, Father. You'd help us to live like we are living in the last days. For we are living in the last days. Help me, Father, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.